0: There we go, it's moving now. Maybe that's going to work. Well, good morning to you. Morning. This morning we're going to be in the book of Ezra. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to that very book, the book of Ezra, found in the Old Testament. We've uh, been in Ezra now, I believe this is week 8 for us. Uh, last week Adam started uh, chapter 4, and so we are going to technically continue in chapter 4, but as we're going to see, it's going to take a vast turn chronologically, and Adam talked about that a good bit last week as he set up uh, these next several chapters for us, Um, but it's uh, it's one of those chapters that you kind of got to get your your hands in there, you got to think about it, you got to study a little bit to figure out what's going on in Ezra 4. Adam did a great job last week uh, preparing the way this morning. Uh, To be honest, I didn't quite know how to uh, structure this morning as I was preparing for. Our time together, and I don't have necessarily, they'll seem like points, but uh, what I've done is I've taken what's called the big idea of the text. Uh, part of the preacher's job is to understand the big idea of the text, what's really going on in this particular passage. And so we have this big idea of the text, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. I'm going to give it to you in four sections. So you've got to write down all four sections to put the puzzle together to find out what the big idea of the text is. And so, after all, the point—expository uh, preaching is making the point of uh, the text, the point of the sermon. So, what better way uh, than this? And so, in Ezra four six uh, to six through twenty-three, this is our assigned text this morning. Uh, the writer is trying to make, uh, or rather, the the point the writer is trying to make is to make an emphatic point. So, kind of follow that, if you will. The point the the writer is trying to make is to make an emphatic point, and I'll make a little more sense as we get started. Uh, this this morning, so uh, like I said, that's kind of uh, how we're going to lay this out. That's, uh, let's jump into our text this morning. Let's read Ezra four six through. we we'll just go ahead and read through twenty four and twenty four. As we'll see, is kind of a transition verse between chapter four and chapter five. Let's just really start with verse uh, 4. Can we do that? one so kind of bridge, all these things together. So picking up where Adam left off, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. And in the reign of ah- 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 I this Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes Bishlam and Ligarath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes king of Persia the letter was written in Aramaic and translated Rahum the commander of Shimshai and the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows Rahum the commander, Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates and the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech the Babylonians, the men of Susa and that is the Elamites and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Onznapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to our cities, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute custom or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished you will have no possession in the province beyond the river The king was sent the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river greeting and now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have have made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes letter was read before Rehum and Shemshah, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for, again, an opportunity to open your word as your gathered people. Thank you for this text that lays before us in Ezra. I pray that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us this morning as we work our way through it, as we seek to understand your word and to make the point of the text, the point of this message, Lord, that it might be one that we can look to Christ ultimately. In His precious and strong name we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we kind of start this uh, this sentence, if you will, these four parts I'm going to give you. The first is this: that Israel faced persistent opposition. Israel faced persistent op- opposition. So we started last week as Adam uh, began chapter four. As we've been in Ezra so far, uh, where the people have been is in rebuilding the temple, the second temple, as it'll become the known uh, become to know known as. Uh, and so this is this is where we left off last week as they were uh, starting Zerubbabel and Yeshua's, as we saw those those guys they've been uh, we've seen them so far we saw them last week in chapter 4 and they encountered some opposition last week now this week we're going to take what's called a big parenthesis as you come to chapter to verse 6 of chapter 4 there is a big parenthesis if you will from verse verse 6 to verse 23 and what i mean by that there's a big gap in time so far, things have mostly followed chronologically. But there is this, this moment here that Ezra, as he is writing, he takes, a, uh, he takes a big leap. There's actually a literary term, and I may butcher it, but it's called prolipsis. It is a device whereby the storyline reaches a certain point and it looks beyond those events. So it looks in the future. Kind of this flash forward, if you would. Adam talked about this last week. And it looks into the future of these events. It talks about these events. And then it comes back to where it started. So Ezra's going to take this big leap, not just a few months or a few years, but ultimately after about a 100 years or so as we'll kind of walk through some of these kings. Takes this big leap, talks about really a different event, and then comes back. And the reason he does that, and the reason that we see these literary devices used is to emphasize a point. And so he is really driving home a point here to the original audience. To, the, to those that was written, he wanted them to really grab And to understand one point, and that is the opposition of God's people. So Israel faced persistent opposition. We see it in the beginning of chapter 4, we see it in the middle of chapter 4, we see it through Ezra, and not just through Ezra, we see it throughout all of God's Word, as we'll look at a little bit later. So Ezra does this to emphasize this theme of opposition that the Jews faced from the outside world while rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. Yeah. But before we jump into the future, let's look at where we left off last week, specifically in verse 3, because this is kind of a the moment that we see something happen. So, they're rebuilding the temple. Uh, they make up. We see that at the end of chapter 3, a lot of noise is made, and as Adam said last week, whether that was the key event or not. Ultimately, the surrounding neighbors caught the wind of what was happening, and they knew that something was going on, so they, they approach the people of Israel and say, hey, we worship the same God, we just worship a little bit differently. And that's where we see in verse 3. But Zerubbabel Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Jerusalem said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord the God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. So these surrounding neighbors they come to uh, to the, the Hebrew people and they say we want to help you build and Zerubbabel and Yeshua and all these other folks said thanks but no thanks. Emphatically said no you're not going to help us because you think we're of the same God but we do not worship the same God. The God you worship is vastly different. We worship the one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so from this moment we see and I believe this is why we um, he says this portion of the text up, then starts this opposition, then the people of the land uh, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose and then we start these a couple kings names here, all the days of Cyrus king of Persia even until the reign of Darius king of Persia and we'll see a couple other kings here that's mentioned Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes and uh, as we know Ahasuerus is also known as Xerxes the first. Now, all these names can get a little bit confusing. Right? Shake your head if these things have been confusing. If you're not saying yes, you're a liar. So pick one. That you're either confused or a liar. One of the two. Or a great scholar. Uh, that's a, I guess that's a possible. So I'm going I'm to give you kind of a little layout, if you will. Just a brief summary of these four kings. There's actually five kings between Cyrus and Artaxerxes, but the the, the, uh, the second one doesn't show up in Scripture. Cyrus' son. But the four, that show up in in scripture, even namely show up in these in about four verses here. It mentions Cyrus and Darius, uh, ah- 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 Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. And so these four, let's kind of put them in their place in history and even in their biblical context. So Cyrus the Great, we see, opens up in the book of Ezra. Uh, he reigned from about 559 to 530 if you're taking notes. And so he was the first king listed here. Chronologically, he comes first. And uh, he was known for allowing the Jews to leave exile, to leave Babylon, Babylon to go back and to rebuild. Now the second king mentioned is Darius or Darius the Great, Darius the uh, First. He ruled from 522 to 486 BC, and uh, under his rule, under his reign, the second temple was finished in Jerusalem, and we'll get to it in Ezra chapter six. And he's also mentioned in the book of Daniel that we went through fairly recently. And then the third king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes the uh, First, he reigned next from. Four eighty six to four sixty five, and he is the one that we saw a lot of and learned a lot about in the book of Esther, or Esther, as some of you say, um, Book of Esther, as we uh, looked at several years ago. And finally, the king that we get to and who is pr- predominant in this passage is Artaxerxes the first, and he went by a couple of other names. Someone said Artaxerxes was actually a title. Someone said Darius was a title, and there is a lot of uh, kind of scholarly debate over these. Issues. Issues. But as we have before us, our Xerxes, uh the first he reigned from 465 to 424 BC and he's known for allowing Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. And so that's kind of these four kings, where they are in history, what they have to do with the biblical text and what they have to do with the people of God. Now we see that Ahasuerus is mentioned very briefly. Uh, we've we've heard a good bit about Cyrus already. We're going to hear more about Darius and now our Xerxes is about to be on the scene, but just one brief verse there. It says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the first launching point into the future from where we were in chapter 4, verse 5. So now we've skipped ahead. And so the reason he's skipping ahead is he wants to see this big picture. He wants the original audience who's reading Ezra when he first wrote it. The Holy Spirit wants us even today to capture this big picture of what's going on and this big picture is opposition. And Israel faced persistent opposition. It started here uh, in this particular case about over the rebuilding of the temple and rebuilding of Jerusalem and rebuilding of the walls. It started right here whenever Zerubbabel rejected the help of the neighboring nations. And it, isn't, it didn't just stop right there. They didn't just go home and get over it and come back in uh, a few months or a few years and say, hey, we can be Friends. That's not what happened at all. But this seed of opposition began and it continues and it continues to grow over decades, almost a century, just in this span that we have in chapter 4 here. And so we see they face persistent opposition. So Ahasuerus, uh, we see that in his time a letter was written. Not the same letter that we're about to find out in verse 7, but a letter was written, a letter of accusation against the Jewish people was written to the king at that time. And so we know they face opposition during Xerxes the first reign. And as we know, they face opposition often. And so Ezra mentions him briefly to remind the original audience that the opposition that was faced, it was not unique to one king, one kingdom, or even one period of time. This was something that would be persistent and ongoing. Although the Lord used these kings to aid Israel at times, we can look at all of these kings and see some good things that the Lord used in their reigns. They were also met with great opposition during every one of their reigns. Israel faced persistent opposition. Secondly, as we continue our big idea of the text here, Israel faced persistent opposition from the enemies of God. Where did this opposition come from? From the enemies of God. Not just their natural enemies, not just people that didn't like them and didn't like their uh, their location or how they smelled or how they looked or any of that. were Ultimately, they faced this persistent opposition from the enemies of God. And there's no denying who these enemies are. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to think about it. It gives us a nice succinct list. These are the people that we're talking about. And even they signed the letter. You can kind of, I, I doubt they have the same envelope system we have today. But they signed the front of this thing. As you look at there in verse um, verse 7 and 8, it says the letter was written in Aramaic. And the reason it was written in Aramaic, because Aramaic was the, 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 the king's language, if you will. Whenever formal documents were written, whenever uh, government documents, were needed. Any kind of formal documentation was written in Aramaic during this time in history, and so they wrote this very formal letter, very intended to do exactly what it was meant to do—to to to, uh, uh, to make an accusation against these people who are rebuilding in Jerusalem. And so he says this letter was written in Aramaic and it's translated. And these two guys, Rahum and Shinshi, uh the scribe, they wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. And here, here's this list before it even gets to uh, before it even gets to the actual content of the letter. It uh, says again, Rehum and Shimsiah and the rest of their associates, judges, governors, officials. So all of these high ranking individuals, the Persians. That's pretty broad, right? So, all of Persia on this letter, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble on, on the spar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and to the rest of the province beyond the river or beyond the Euphrates. And so we see everyone is coming together. It's not this small group. It's not just a handful of people. But all of these people who can be identified as the enemies of God, they're coming together for one common purpose, and that is to bring accusation and opposition against the people of God. So Israel faced persistent opposition from the enemies of God. So why did this host of men, why did they hate God's people so much? When you unpack this letter, it becomes fairly clear. And as you read this letter, we know that these are uh, misconstrued facts at best. We know that Jerusalem has been on the scene. We know there's been turmoil on the land. But we see outright lies that are levied from these officials to the king in order to get what they are seeking. And so when you go to verse 11, this is the copy of the letter that they sent to exercises, the king, your servants, the men of the prophets beyond the river. It's in greeting. And so, uh, they're doing this official greeting here. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Do you get the irony there? These pagan men, these, Gentile, these Gentiles, these nations who are far from the Lord, who are enemies of God, who hate God, who hate Hate his ways. Who, at best, on their best days, they're synchronistic, right? At the best days, they're trying to combine uh, their ways and Yahweh's ways. But we know even that is deplorable in the sight of God. So these men—they're looking to Israel. They're looking to Jerusalem. So look at this wicked city, O oh King. How how terrible and how um, how ironic, if you will, that the wicked are calling the righteous wicked. So, uh, this wicked city, they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. They're probably going to just put a period right there and end of the letter, right? No matter what century you're in, it's always about money. You just follow the dollar. Follow the gold coins. And that's the issue. They said, so king, if you keep these foundations, folks over here, you're going to lose money. They're not going to pay you what they should pay you. So the royal revenue, the treasury, is going to suffer. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and so what does having to eat the salt have anything to do with anything? It is a a reference to likely a couple to at least one of two things. Uh, Could be to the covenant that they've made uh, this band of nations together that salt is an an instrument of making a covenant. but It could also just be that they are uh, under the provision of the palace. They're under the provision of this king. And so it, it points to their interconnectedness to each other and to to the king. So because we are connected, because we are one, we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. So king, we are of you. And we're looking out for your honor. Do you think they were looking out for their honor? No. Therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. And that is why the city was laid waste. Because Jerusalem, we know, was laid waste whenever they were taken into exile and Jerusalem was attacked. But they are misrepresenting history. And they're ultimately saying, look at your forefathers. Look at your king. Look at your history. And you'll know this is something you should do. We should rule against Jerusalem. That is why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So it says not only will you lose money, not only is this a wicked city, but if you don't do this, if you don't stop these Hebrews now, then you're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your, your kingdom. It's going to shrink. So we see all these accusations this host of men have thrown against the people of God to this king in order to have them removed and attacked and to have them cease their rebuilding of the city and of the walls. So these are the cited reasons to oppose the Jews. But likely, it was simply that they were not the people of God. The, these people who rose up against them, they don't particularly care about all this stuff because most of this was not going to bear you fruit. It was not going to be an issue. But they were bringing the, these charges. They were levying these charges against the Hebrew people because they were the enemies of God. They were the enemies of God. They hated Israel and they hated the God of Israel. This hatred and opposition—it is nothing new, and it is nothing to be unexpected. You go back to Genesis three; we see the beginning of this hatred between God and His enemies in the fall of man, when sin enters into the world, and we see the enmity be put between the serpent and ultimately Christ. You see through several books, just to give you a few references, you go to Exodus, and look at Exodus chapter 1, Israel is opposed by Pharaoh as he enslaves the people of God and tries to destroy them by even ordering the murder of their firstborn children throughout the land. You go to Numbers in 22-24, to Israel is opposed by the Moabites and the Midianites. These nations uh, attempt to curse Israel through Balaam, if you remember that story. You look at Joshua and see that Israel is opposed by the Canaanite king. As they're trying to enter into the promised land. Go to the book of Judges and see that Israel again is opposed by neighboring nations like the Philistines, the Midianites, and the Ammonites. Go to the book of Kings, first and second. You see Israel is opposed by frequent military opposition from the surrounding nations, like Syria and Assyria and Babylon. When you go to the Psalms, and Israel is opposed very often. You see their prayers, you see their songs of lament as they cry out to the Lord. As many Psalms describe the opposition and hatred faced by the Psalmist and faced by the people of God. It's not uncommon, it's not a new thing for people of God to be hated ultimately because people hate the Lord. Israel knew opposition. They found themselves there quite often. At times their opposition was met as a reminder of their sin. As they found themselves in opposition, it wasn't always the same source, the same reason, but sometimes it was a reminder of their sin. And sometimes it was a reminder that they were uniquely set apart from the world and which led to opposition. Whichever the case, it was to always point them to their need of the Lord. When they faced opposition, it was always to draw them back to the Lord. But here in Ezra, the opposition they're facing is preventing them from doing something. Which brings us to our third part of our, of our big idea this morning. Israel faced persistent opposition from the enemies of God to be kept from completing the work of God. To be kept from completing the work of God. They had a task. They had an assignment. They understood the assignment. They were set out to do the work of the Lord as the people of God. That's what they were committed to do. And then this opposition arose from Artaxerxes and his surrounding nations. So Israel faced persistent opposition from the enemies of God to be kept from completing the work of God. As these enemies of God rose up and opposed uh, God's work, His work was interrupted, or at least seemingly interrupted. At this point, if, and this is kind of this is where you kind of got to follow along, and it's important to know they're jumping ahead in the story. They're jumping ahead down the road. They are not working on the temple as they were in the beginning of chapter four and chapter three. They are actually working on the city, as you see there at the end of chapter three, and you see it go back to uh, to the present time, if you will, in earlier chapter four, because it goes back to the house of God. We look at verse twenty one. Therefore, make a decree that these men may be made to cease, and that this city may not be rebuilt. And so they are rebuilding the city. This is down the road. The temple has already been completed. The second temple has. And they're working on the city. And so their work, there's still plenty of work to be done. But this work has an interruption. The temple had been completed around 516 BC. They were working to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's interesting to me. I, I like this one word that um, that kind of pops up in the study this this week. Is that his work? God's work was interrupted, but it was not thwarted. Was the last time you used the word thwarted in conversation? T H W A R T E D, thwarted. thwarted. His work was interrupted, but it was not thwarted. You say, John, you're just making things up. Let's just go real quick to the book of Job. Because Job speaks to this. Job chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things. Is that not true? God can do all things. We talk about God's sovereignty weekly. He can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God. The rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the reestablishment of God's people in Jerusalem, and all the things God intended, His plan, His purposes could not, would not, and was not thwarted. It was impossible. For God sits in the heavens and does as He pleases. Now in the moment, you could have asked probably any Hebrew out there working the state of things, and they likely would have been dismayed. Whether it was in early chapter 4 as they rebuilt the temple, or whether it was a hundred years later as they were rebuilding the city, or maybe during Nehemiah's time in the rebuilding the walls, and whenever their work is is ordered to be ceased and to stop, maybe they have been very exasperated, maybe very dismayed because they thought the work of God was being thwarted. They thought this interruption would be permanent. Permanent, But we know as those who have hope in the Lord, those who have seen God be steadfast and sustain His people and be a keeper of all of His promises through all of Scripture, we know that God's work and His Word will not be thwarted. So they may have been dismayed; They may have thought His plans were being interrupted unexpectedly. Ezra writes this account and he uses this rare technique of flashing forward so that the audience could be reminded that this opposition was common. That this opposition they had faced so many times, it was not just earlier on, it was not just during their great-grandfather's life, but it was all throughout the history, not even during just their life, as they're rebuilding the wall during Art Xerxes' time to be encouraged. At every corner, it may have felt that God's plans were being thwarted, yet they were only being seemingly interrupted. Seemingly interrupted. Because we know that those who firmly trust in God's sovereignty, those who really look to and trust and believe in God's sovereignty, even those perceived interruptions are part of God's plans. There are no accidents. There are no mistakes. There are no oops. And God's going to react. Oh, I didn't know that our resources were going to do that. I didn't know that all the king's men would come together and shut down my project. What am I going to do? all of these things are part of His sovereign plan. Even these perceived interruptions for all things work together for His counsel. Maybe this morning we need that reminder that God's plans will never be thwarted. His plans for your life, His plans for your kids' lives, His plans for the world around us, that God is carefully and faithfully bringing about His will in all things. Not just some things. Not just church-related things. Not just the history of things. But presently and for all future eternity, that God's plans will always come about. And He is carefully and faithfully bringing these about in all things. Which leads us to the next part of um, of our big idea, the last part. So here's the big idea of the text. Israel faced persistent opposition from the enemies of God to be kept from completing the work of the Lord and so do we. So do we. We too face this persistent opposition from enemies of God to be kept from completing the work of the Lord. Go with me to the book of John. Such is just a, a great parallel to Ezra chapter 4. John 15. We'll start in verse 18. And go through 1611 so we're going to read this this chunk of scripture but I believe it'll be helpful to us John 1518 says this if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you Nothing new. Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we can go to understand the why uh, did the Persians hate the people of God? Why do people today hate the people of God? Why do any does anybody in all creation hate the people of God as they're actively following and serving the Lord? There's the reason why right there. Because they hate God. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me or if they opposed me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me." If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. They hate God the Father and God the Son. and hate God's people. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said to all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So what Jesus is saying here in this kind of transition verse from 15 to 16, and He's saying this to encourage His people. He's saying to prepare them. To say, look, it's going to be bad. He said, I'm not promising you a life of luxury. I'm not promising you a life of peace. I'm not promising that things are going to go well. Actually, I'm telling you, people are going to hate you. Because they hate me. They hate the Father. They're definitely going to hate you. If you hate Jesus, how much more are you going to hate John McCartney? (laughs) He's the worst. And so I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And He promises the coming of the Spirit. It will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You can go back to even the beginning of Ezra 4 and you feel that, um, that tension there. That sinful tension that you can be serving God and be an enemy of God at the same time. And that's what He says. They're going to be kicking you out of the synagogues. They're going to be killing you. And they think they're doing a service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Because they do not believe in Me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so I know that's a, that's a lengthy passage there. But we see so much of what God is doing and, and for, uh, what, what we should expect as His people. We should expect turmoil. We should expect opposition. We should expect to be hated by the by the enemies of God. Jesus was hated first. The church today continues to face opposition. And of course, when we think that, we immediately think of the, of the American church. And we may, we may come up with some examples. There are, there are no doubt some examples, but I think of the broader church. We can look to the church in China as a prime example. The Chinese Communist Party has imposed several restrictions on Christian gatherings, for specifically surveillance and monitoring of church services. They're not watching so they can hear the word preached. They're not dialing into the live stream. They're surveilling and monitoring to see if it conflicts with the message of the state, removal of crosses or other faith symbols from places of worship. So if you're gathered as if you're gathered as a church, you better not look like it. Requirements to register with state-sanctioned church organizations. Again, they want that syncretism. They want the worship of God to hook up to the worship of things that are not truly of God. The teachings that are false. And also restriction or outright ban on youth attending church services. So they don't want the youth of China to hear the Word of God. There are plenty of restrictions. There's plenty of opposition. And this didn't just happen in this government. They're not limited to a single period or a time frame or a regime. This has been going on for generations. As this particular country tries to control and limit religious activities. Similar to the persistent opposition that we see in Azure 4. We don't have that sort of opposition in the U.S. yet. Maybe the future will hold that. But the government, media, and all sorts of organizations are vehemently opposed to God and to those who follow Him. You don't have to look far to see the opposition that we face as believers today. The opposition is clear. and The opposition is persistent. Some of us encounter it at different levels. But as we follow Christ, we will meet opposition. And if we don't meet opposition, we likely may not be following Christ. So we should embrace opposition because it brings us in alignment with Christ Himself. In Christ, we are ultimately victors. In Christ, we are ultimately victors. But Jesus said, at times, you will be victims. But yet here's the beauty of the gospel that at once upon a time we were vile enemies of God vile enemies of God go with me to Romans chapter 5 real quick Romans chapter 5 it's fairly easy and normal when you start talking about the enemies of God that you think about others. You think about other organizations. You think about the media. You think about maybe uh, foreign governments. You think about those in the past. You think about different regimes. You immediately think about others, and we don't have to look far to find the enemies of God in Romans five, verse six. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, John, I know I was a sinner, but I'm not an enemy of God. I can't be that. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So, yes, we were once enemies of God. We were estranged to the person of Christ. We were estranged to the person, to the purposes of God. Because of Christ, we have been saved and reconciled and redeemed. Because of the hope of the gospel, we are no longer enemies. Not even servants, Jesus says, but now I call you friends. More than that, Paul says to the Romans, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. And so you will either meet the wrath of God or the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. So we are ultimately victors in Christ. At times we may be victims, but once we were vile enemies of God. And so praise be to God that He has redeemed us as those vile enemies. That He sustains us when we are victims of opposition and makes us victors through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we even gather around this table this morning, we do so, we celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. It's not just a song that we sing, but we are true victors in Christ because of the work and person of Jesus. And we gather around this communion table each week to be reminded of His broken body and His poured out blood. And whenever we do face opposition, but ultimately we can look to the hope that we have in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you